0: I, I thought just to start out, I'd, I'd say a, a, f- a few words about uh, the thought process that went into choosing the subject of my remarks this morning. Uh, what I, I did was start by thinking very seriously about uh, this audience, uh, the Richmond region that I've come to know and love uh, since uh, moving here in 1989, and uh, what you know sort of topics of economic substance might be of, of relevance to the Richmond community. I thought about this cycling event and, and its economic impact on the, the community. My sister is a competitive cyclist. The route runs not far from me where I live in the fan. Uh, and I, wa- I watch Tour de France every now and then in the, in the summer. Uh, but then I realized that in terms of expertise, me, cycling, it was going to be kind of a stretch. I thought about the Children's Hospital. Projects like that are controversial. They have a great economic impact uh, around and. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I know Catherine Busser, and, and, and so I could probably bone up on that and maybe talk about its economic impact. But even though I was introduced as a doctor, I, I'm not that kind of doctor. So I think that would be kind of a stretch too. And then finally, I thought about, you know, the, the big issue of the day here in Richmond, right? Where to put the ballpark. <laughs> now that involves some substantive economic trade-offs. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear. But then, you know, I realized it's kind of controversial. Virtually everyone has an opinion about it. And as long as I'm gonna talk about something that's controversial and about which virtually everyone has an opinion, I might as well talk about Federal Reserve interest rate policy. (laughs) So that's my subject today. Again, thank you for inviting me to uh, to speak. Uh, We're very appreciative of Nancy Thomas and uh, the, the, re- the, Richmond, uh, the retail merchant associations for helping us at the Richmond Fed understand economic conditions around the, the Richmond region. She's done, been a great help in that, and we really appreciate it. So I think uh, it's fair to say, uh, as I alluded to, that um, the Federal Reserve's uh, interest rate policy has been uh, the subject of very prominent media attention of late. Uh, The current setting, though, of uh, the Fed's policy rate dates back to 2008, the very end of that year, when financial turmoil was worsening and the recession was deepening. That's when the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, set a target range for the federal funds rate of between zero and 25 basis points. Uh, With short-term rates now having been at at near zero for uh, the better part of six years, inflation has been at least one percent, so real inflation-adjusted interest rates have essentially been negative for the better part of six years. Now, following other recent recessions in the last couple of decades, the Fed has typically raised interest rates uh, within a few quarters of the end of the contraction phase of the recession. In contrast, uh, after the Great Recession in 2007, 2008, 2009, The Great Recession ended in the second quarter of 2009, and many initially expected rates to rise pretty soon, uh, within a couple of years. Um, But we're now entering the seventh year um, of what seems like an epic waiting game. So the title of my talk today is The Case Against Further Delay. As that title suggests, I plan to review the main reasons to begin raising rates sooner rather than later. And as, as you may know, the FOMC is scheduled to meet uh, a week after next, uh, in mid-September. I expect the Committee to fully consider um, both the arguments for and against uh, further delay at that time. Earlier this year, I said publicly that I thought the case for raising rates was strong, and I still think that's true. But I should emphasize that I won't make a final decision on that question until I've had the benefit of discussions with my colleagues at the upcoming meeting, and until I've uh, had a chance to review any additional data we receive between now and then. I should emphasize uh, that, as always, I'm speaking for myself, and the views expressed are not the official views of the FOMC. So let's get started. In my view, the most significant facts supporting an interest rate increase are, are related to household expenditures, and I'm sure a room full of retailers is well aware that consumer spending plays a major role in our economy, uh, constituting more than two-thirds of our gross domestic product, or GDP, our uh, broadest measure of economic activity. So, following the end of the recession, growth in personal consumption expenditures was relatively slow as households repaired their balance sheets and faced uh, very weak labor markets. After an initial post-recession rebound, consumer spending growth averaged less than 2 percent at an annual rate for several years. In 2014, however, household spending accelerated, averaging over 3% for the year, only to fall back, though, to a slower pace at the very beginning of this year, in the first quarter. But that first quarter slowdown seems largely attributable to temporary factors, such as unusually severe winter weather in many areas of the country. Spending growth has picked up since then, and it's been growing at a 3.1% annual rate over the last three months. Now, household spending, moment's reflection uh, reveals, and, and this is borne out by economic data, is fueled by household income growth, um, both current and anticipated uh, income growth. And real income, inflation-adjusted income, has re- registered significant gains since the end of the recession, driven in part by the steady employment growth we've seen since 2011. Now, I'll have uh, a bit more to say about jobs in a few minutes. Uh, But let me just say now that I I believe that improvements in the labor market are likely to fuel healthy growth in consumer spending uh, in the year or two ahead at between 2.5 and 3 percent uh, per year. So what is the link between consumer spending growth and monetary policy? As I noted at the outset, uh, with the federal funds rate near zero and inflation running between 1 and 2 percent real short-term interest rates, that is, interest rates adjusted to take out the effect of inflation, have been negative for almost six years. Now, conceptually speaking, the real interest rate is, uh, forgive me for a little abstraction here, is the price at which people can exchange purchasing power today for purchasing power tomorrow. And that price, logic indicates, should reflect the balance of supply of and demand for goods both today and in the future. Now, in general, this suggests, and we have an array of models that bear this out, that there should be a connection between real interest rates and the expected rate of growth of consumer spending. Higher growth should be associated with higher real interest rates, and similarly, lower growth with lower real interest rates. Now, this connection isn't always tight in the data. I have to provide you with that caveat, but this logic is strong, and it suggests that negative real interest rates are unlikely to be appropriate for an economy with persistent consumption growth uh, at the rate we're now seeing. Now, some economists uh, have argued that there's a secular downward trend that's affecting real interest rates, uh, and it's driven by lower productivity growth and increased demand for the safety of U.S. Treasury securities. And some people talk about a secular stagnation, in fact. As a result of this, um, these, these economists say we should expect lower average real interest rates in the immediate future, and monetary policy makers should take this into account. For example, some, pol- some argue, uh, again, forgive me for a little abstraction here, some argue that we should revise our estimate of a key parameter that's uh, it's sometimes referred to as the natural rate of interest or the equilibrium rate of interest, you don't need to remember those terms, um, but it's a key parameter that plays a role in some simple algebraic formulas that are often used as benchmarks to inform monetary policy setting. These formulas are sometimes called Taylor rules, after the Stanford economist John Taylor, but don't have to remember that term either. Um, These formulas uh, do a really good job of summarizing um, in a, a parsimonious way the historical conduct of monetary policy. When you fit them to data about how we've conducted policy in the past, they do a good job of saying about where we've 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 gone with interest rate settings, now be, because of that, and because our credibility as a central bank, uh, the credibility of our commitment to price stability, uh, depends on people expecting that we are going to continue to conduct policy in the way we have that maintains price stability that keeps inflation low and stable. Because of that fact, deviating from these rules is 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 something that you should be very careful about. These rules encapsulate a pattern of behavior in these simple formulas. So they're not something to be followed slavishly, uh, but deviating far from them can be particularly risky. Now, the possibility of longer run swings in macroeconomic parameters, like the parameters of those rules, I think need to be taken seriously um, and need to be studied carefully. But for me, the evidence so far in this case is not yet compelling enough to warrant setting aside considerations that would otherwise prescribe raising interest rates. So I should mention that other uh, components of GDP, besides uh, household spending, are, are he- showing healthy growth as well. Um, like consumer spending, business investment spending weakened around the b- beginning of the year. Um, but the recent reports we have uh, from over the summer indicate that capital goods orders appear to have bottomed out last spring and have increased since then. And non-residential construction spending has registered strong gains as well, particularly outside the oil and gas exploration areas. And these reports taken together suggest that investment, business investment is likely to be contributing positively to growth later this year and beyond. Residential investment has also registered very healthy gains this year. Housing starts year-to-date through July. We're up 11% over the previous year. Now, even though the rate of home building is rising from a relatively low post-recession base, it's unlikely to return soon, too, to the torrid pre-recession pace. But the housing market has been making noticeable contributions to, to total economic growth, and I expect that to continue as well. So let me turn to labor markets. Earlier this year, as the FOMC began to prepare the public uh, for the eventual rise in interest rates, uh, the committee said that it was looking for, quote, further improvements in the labor market, unquote, before an increase in interest rates would be appropriate. I'd argue that those improvements have materialized. So far this year, the economy has produced an average of 213,000 net new jobs per month, and the unemployment rate has fallen to 5.3%. I should note that these numbers pertain to July. The report uh, for August employment, the August Employment Report is due to be released at 8:30 this morning. That would be in another three minutes. Um, so if you get it on your iPhone, please don't spoil the suspense. <laughs> Someone's gonna bring me the number after the speech, and beginning of QA, I'll tell you what the number is. Um, now there's there's always, there's always a chance, you know, sort of risky giving an economic speech on the day of an employment report. There's always a chance that the number comes in unexpectedly weak. But I think it's quite unlikely that a one-month blip in either direction would really materially alter uh, the picture uh, of the labor market or, for that matter, the monetary policy outlook. After all, we've added 12 million jobs uh, since the trough in payroll employment in two, early 2010. So, a couple of hundred, you know, 100,000 one way or another, just unlikely to make a substantive difference in the picture of labor market conditions uh, based on today's report. So, if you take these national statistics on employment uh, that we've seen over the months before August, um, it, it, they indicate a significant tightening in labor markets has taken place over the last year, year and a half. That conclusion is supported as well by anecdotal information that we have been receiving from our contacts within the 5th Federal Reserve District, which extends from Maryland down to South Carolina includes almost all of West Virginia. Over the last year or so, reports of difficulty finding and hiring qualified workers, particularly in some uh, specific occupations, have become notably more widespread and persistent. Now, you'll notice that uh, when I cited job growth figures, I I, I cited the number of net new jobs. While that's a really critical statistic for us, the overall net change number masks a significant amount of activity going on uh, under the waterline, as it were. Every day, every day, thousands of workers leave their current jobs or start new jobs, and thousands of employers uh, lay people off or create new vacancies. And this churn is a very important characteristic of dynamic labor markets, as emphasized by research by Stephen Davis and John Halterwanger. Uh, I I talked about a net change of 213,000 jobs. On a gross basis, on a, a typical month, between four and five million new hires take place, four or five million new hires, and the net change is 213, just an astonishing amount of activity. These measures, uh, the measures that capture those flows, like, like hires and, and, and vacancies and the like, are, have all been indicating uh, strength in the labor markets as well. So the number of vacancies uh, that have, are posted uh, nationwide is up 11% year over year. The hiring rate, the number of new hires, uh, up 7% year over year. And this is an interesting one, the rate at which workers voluntarily leave their jobs, the so-called quit rate, which is a kind of an indicator of the confidence workers have in their job market prospects. You go to a new job, if it doesn't work out, you're gonna be on the job market again, probably can't go back to your old job. You need some confidence that the market is liquid enough for your kind of skills. That's up 11% year over year as well. Uh, So taken together, the the amount of turnover in the job market a healthy sign uh, is up pretty significantly over the last two years. The unemployment rate, um, everyone focuses on, will be a focus on the report this morning, peaked at 10% in October of 2009. It's fallen more rapidly than many people expected. And that decline has been, though, accompanied by a large decline in labor force participation. It's the fraction of the working age population that's either employed or looking for work that dropped roughly 3 percentage points since the end of the recession. That's a fairly steep drop by historical standards. Some observers have been concerned that many people who've been left out who have left the labor force represent a significant amount of slack beyond what's captured in the traditional unemployment rate. And they worry that these underutilized labor uh, resources could be easily drawn back into the workforce. Uh, as the economy expands, and so we ought to think of them as additional unemployed uh, resources. Now, those who are concerned about this point to the number of people working part. Also, point to the number of people working part time uh, who would prefer to work full time. There's a broader measure of unemployment that the Labor uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics reports uh, that includes uh, these part-time workers plus the people who've left the workforce but would like to be working. Don't n- don't count as unemployed. And it, that measure was 10.4% in July, well above the official unemployment rate of 5.3%. So the, there is some basis for the notion that there, are, there is additional slack out there uh, above and beyond what's captured by the official unemployment rate. But most people who've left the labor force are not currently looking for work. The decline in the labor force participation uh, rate has been driven uh, by structural and demographic factors, and there's a lot of research that points in that direction. For example, the number of people rolling in college has increased, Uh, healthy response to uh, differentials for uh, different skill levels, different education levels. And uh, the large baby boom uh, generation is reaching retirement age, uh, entering ages in which their participation rate is generally lower. In addition, research indicates that not all people without a job have the same propensity to return to the workforce. Uh, I'll just give you an example of this from home here. Richmond Fed researchers, economists at the Richmond Fed, have constructed a broader measure of underutilization. They call it the non-employment index. The unemployment rate was taken, so we called it non-employment. Uh, this index counts all people who are not working. Everybody doesn't have a job counts in this. It's just that those who are, uh, um, it's just that, that we weight them differently depending on measures of their likelihood of making a transition back to work. So the unemployment rate counts you as one if you've worked, if you've looked for work in the last four weeks, and zero if you haven't looked for work in the last four weeks, even if you say you'd like a job. And we know from the data that people who are, who are out of the labor force who haven't looked in the last four weeks often make a transition to employment from one month to the next. So It seems like they ought to be counted as slack uh, labor market resources. Um, So for example, these differences can be substantial. Unemployed people who are actively looking for work are about three times more likely to become employed than people who say they would like to find a job, but are not actively seeking one. Uh, So some substantial variation takes place, and they take this into account. So their research demonstrates that there is more slack than is captured by uh, the official unemployment rate but there seems to be no more now than there usually is when the unemployment rate is about 5.3%. So these indicators all move in tandem, up in recessions, down in expansions, and um, as a res- their research indicates that the official unemployment rate is providing a reasonably accurate guide to how the utilization of labor resources has changed over time, and in particular has improved uh, over the course of this expansion. Now, measures of slack, or unemployment or underutilization are often compared against a normative benchmark of some sort, that, some assessment of what normal amount of slack would be. And we used to, in the 60s, call this full employment or something like that, and that term's gone out of fashion for various reasons, but some normative benchmark. Are we there yet in terms of where uh, labor market underutilization is? Now, such an assessment uh, usually takes into account that there will always be some people who've left the labor force because either they've been discouraged about the likelihood of finding a job or they can only find part-time work even though they'd like to work full-time. And it also takes into account, it ought to take into account the substantial uncertainty about what constitutes normal. Normal, after all, is an unobserved variable. And and so our estimates of that are necessarily imprecise. So economists have taken a, a range of different approaches to estimating the relevant benchmark My sense is that the current unemployment rate is statistically indistinguishable from plausible normative benchmarks, such as full employment or the natural rate of unemployment and the like. Um, So in terms of are we there yet, I think the answer is yes. Some argue that there must be excessive slack in labor markets if wage rates aren't accelerating, but real wages are tied to productivity growth and a a room full of, of, of small business people like this ought to understand that. And productivity growth has been slow, uh, the best we can measure it, uh, for several years now. Wage growth in real terms has at least kept pace with productivity growth over this time period, and that is perfectly consistent with an economy from which labor market slack has largely dissipated. So I don't view the evidence on wages as telling us much about uh, how much slack remains. So overall, then, my take... I think the evidence indicates that labor market conditions no longer warrant continuation of exceptionally low interest rates. So let me pivot here a little bit. Although it's easy to overlook, uh, given the intense focus on labor markets in recent years, the Federal Reserve, as our nation's central bank, is responsible for controlling inflation. At the beginning of 2012, the FOMC announced an explicit long-run inflation goal of 2%, confirming Uh, what had been widely viewed as our implicit uh, inflation target. Inflation has been below that target uh, by varying amounts since the middle of 2012, about three years. Since January, however, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, which is the methodologically most preferred uh, by economists measure of inflation, has grown at an average annual rate of 2.2 percent from January through July of this year, 2.2 2.2 percent last month, for which we have those data. The core index, the version of that index that strips out the volatile food and energy uh, components, has grown at an average annual rate of 1.7 percent. Now, you may have heard in uh, reports or other people's speeches that inflation over the 12 months ending July was 0.3 percent, and um, that that's the basis for people saying, "Well, inflation is still running well below our target." The 12 month that 12 month span includes the period from January to July 2.2 that I talked about, but also the period from July 2014 to January t- 2015 in which inflation averaged negative 1.5 percent. These numbers have been seasonally adjusted, and the, 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 the basic fact is that it was six months ago, it was more than six months ago, that oil prices fell so dramatically. Retail gasoline prices fell, the dollar strengthened, import prices fell, that all happened leading up to January. Since then, those those effects are behind us. Um, so I think these these numbers, uh, which as I said have been seasonally adjusted by the Department of Commerce, provide strong evidence that the transitory effects of uh, what we saw last year, uh, by way of energy price and exchange rate movements, are 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 behind us. Are completely behind us now. The second condition the FOMC lays laid out for raising interest rates was that it would have to be, quote, reasonably confident that inflation will move back to its 2 percent objective over the medium term, unquote. The last half year of data show that inflation already has returned to our 2 percent objective, in my view. Thus, for me, we have met both conditions that the FOMC stated earlier this year that would make it appropriate to raise the target rate uh, for the federal funds rate. Now this return of the inflation rate to 2 percent should not be surprising. The deviation uh, from the Committee's inflation goal during the past few years was not especially large, and our our best measures of inflation expectations have held reasonably steady at rates consistent with inflation uh, returning to the FOMC's 2 percent goal. As a result, I believe uh, we can be reasonably confident that inflation will continue to gravitate to 2 percent, as long as we do not depart from conducting monetary policy in a manner that's that's consistent with continued expectations uh, that we're going to maintain price stability. So no discussion of macroeconomic conditions at this moment in time would be complete without mention of recent financial market volatility. Developments in China appear to have heightened uncertainty regarding future economic growth and macroeconomic policy there, And that seems to have prompted higher financial market volatility in the developed economies. At times, market turbulence uh, like this, one must maintain a a healthy and deep respect for the divergent ways in which events could conceivably unfold from now on. Uh, And thus, I will not pretend I can foretell the future uh, exactly about this. Nevertheless, I think it's worth observing a couple of things. I think it's worth noting that the direct effects of uh, recent imp- developments for economic fundamentals in the United States um, appear to be quite limited. And if that's true, that assessment's correct, then recent market developments will have only limited implications for the appropriate path of monetary policy as well. Now that might seem to contradict the widespread conjecture about the Fed delaying liftoff due to market turbulence. But I'd point out that the Fed has a history, and others as well, of overreacting to financial market movements that seem unconnected from economic fundamentals. The events of 1998 1999, I think, are a case in point there. Then uh, financial market developments in emerging markets-remember, that was at the tail end of the Asian crisis-generated substantial U.S. market volatility over the summer of 1998 despite very limited identifiable implications for US growth. The FOMC cut interest rates three times in late 1998, but it ended up taking those cuts back the following year after realizing that US growth uh, was, was going to be relatively unaffected uh, by what was happening over there. So is now the time? After the FOMC reduced interest rates to near zero in 2008, We included qualitative language in our statement indicating that we thought exceptionally low interest rates would be appropriate for some time, that was the first phrase, and then for an extended period, that was the next phrase we used. Uh, But then in August of 2011, we altered this, this is called forward guidance language, we altered our forward guidance language to specify a date before which we thought an increase in the federal funds rate was unlikely. Uh, The date was moved forward several times uh, after that. Uh, moved closer to today, and it eventually stated that low rates were likely until mid-2015. At the end of 2012, this date-based forward guidance was replaced with a statement that the committee anticipated that low rates would be appropriate at least as long as the unemployment rate remains above a threshold of 6.5 percent. The FOMC also stated at the time that this guidance was consistent with previous date-based guidance, that is with Low rates persisting at least until mid-2015. So here we are, just past mid-2015, robust employment growth, an unemployment rate that's fallen rapidly over the past few years, more rapidly than many people had thought, and is now a full percentage point below the committee's forward guidance threshold of 6.5%. Moreover, inflation is arguably running just above the FOMC's objective of 2 percent. Not below 2 percent, but above 2 percent. Some might argue that as long as inflation is close to 2 percent, we have a free pass. We can keep supporting the real side of the economy uh, with low rates until inflation rises. But if, as I've argued, the real side of the economy calls for a higher interest rate, then there's a real danger associated with such a strategy. Inflation is a lagging indicator and the forces that lead to rising inflation can build up before they're apparent in the data. We saw this in the mid 60s uh, when inflation began increasing after 6 years of holding steady of around 1%. Policymakers then kept interest rates low in pursuit of low unemployment in the belief that an unemployment rate consistent with full employment was lower than modern research has shown it actually was then at the time. So this This is what sparked it. This is what set off the period known as the Great Inflation, which lasted until the early 1980s and was exceptionally painful and quite difficult to reverse. Waiting too long to begin raising rates could require a more dramatic increase in rates later to restrain inflation pressures once they've become apparent in the data. The case I've made for raising rates It has uh, actually been true for some time, I think. I could have made the same arguments in June, could have made the same arguments in April. But I've been willing to wait so far this year. In part, that's because at the beginning of the year, the FOMC conditioned the public not to expect a liftoff before June. And deviating from the expectations we've actively fostered should require a significant departure from the economic conditions we anticipated, and that didn't occur. In contrast, the committee has been clear since June that an increase is possible at any remaining meeting. I was also willing to wait for confirmation that the factors holding down real growth and inflation late last year and early this year were transitory. It's now clear that these factors, which included harsh winter weather, strengthening dollars, steep decline in energy prices, have dissipated. It was not unreasonable to seek more definitive evidence that these impediments to growth and price stability had passed, but that question has been def- now been definitively settled. Progress has been slow and uneven, but this economy has worked its way back from the dislocations of the Great Recession. Unemployment is quite close to pre-recession levels, real GDP growth has been slow but steady, and inflation is tracking our objective. I'm not arguing that this economy is perfect by any means, Uh, But nor is it on the ropes, uh, requiring the stimulus of low monetary policy interest rates to get it back into the ring. It's time to align our monetary policy uh, with the significant economic progress that we've made. I thank you for your attention, and, and thank you again for inviting me here. And now for today's employment report. All right, so uh, thanks to Ann Maharas, regional economist. Uh, so the unemployment rate uh, fell two-tenths to 5.1%. Uh, let's see, let me go to payroll employment, uh, was up 173,000 jobs. That's a reasonably strong uh, increase. The previous month was revised up by 14,000, and now that reading is down 245,000 jobs. Um, the payroll employment is up 2.2% year over year. As an example, you know maybe it's under two hundred thousand. Doesn't lead with the two, but still, it's a strong number. Um, average hourly earnings um, were up, uh, are up year over year two point two percent. So we had an uptick in average hourly earnings. That's been uh, wiggling around two percent on a year over year basis. Uh, it's ticked up to two point one or two point two before. So um, this isn't a breakout sort of move. Labor force participation rate unchanged, um, and um, that's. That's about it. Uh, So, I'd call this a good, um, pretty much right down the middle of the fairway uh, sort of employment report. And uh, as I predicted, it didn't change uh, the picture for monetary policy. So, uh, good report. Be happy to take questions if there are any. So, there's one in the far back there, on the left. Waits for the mic. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-oh. I dropped the business cards.
1: <laughs> so certainly a well-reasoned argument for a liftoff in the near term, and, and I, I can see how that would, that would make sense based on what you've shared. But the, the argument that the economy is not on the ropes, how much longer do you think that can be true with the national debt, underfunded entitlement programs, and things like that, with just some of those more fundamental Macroeconomic things.
0: Good question. So it's about our fiscal policy stance. Um, we, um, you know, we we ran tremendously large deficits in the recession as a result of fall in incomes and tax revenues and increase in entitlement payments. That um, and the stimulus program as well. That deficit has come down um, to levels that I'll, I'll say people view as moderate now, but 20 years ago would have been quite alarming. Um, Right now, our, our fiscal problems are of a longer term nature. Uh, we're gonna enjoy a couple of years of uh, coasting, uh, but then uh, five to 10 years from now, uh, the imbalances will grow pretty dramatic, at a pretty dramatic rate. Uh, so we're looking at a curve that's, that's, that's gonna bend up, but not for five to 10 years. Um, so whether that um, results in a major setback to economic activity, I think is entirely in the hands of our political leaders and um, and it is entirely dependent on how we choose to address those problems. If we wait uh, and uh, respond to them in a crisis manner, uh, there could be some sharp disruptions, uh, dramatic increases in taxes, for example, or, or cuts in benefits uh, could be sharp dislocation. This is why I've always advocated getting ahead of this problem, and that for 10 years I've been saying when asked, uh, we ought to address, it's gonna be easier to address, easier to swallow, easier for us to adapt to if we address those problems early and get a smooth glide path to a more sustainable fiscal uh, trajectory. So, good question. A question from Style Weekly. Um, You mentioned, of course, the big rise of inflation from the 60s until the early 1980s. But uh, one of the things that uh, did happen during that period were two energy shocks in 73 and again in 78, 79. At the present time, you have the reverse. You have energy deflating. Doesn't that somehow go against your argument for raising rates? So that's a good question. And it's uh, been hotly debated in the field. And I think, I think it's pretty much settled. I mean, if you look at uh, the rise in energy prices in the 2000s, it was of the same order of magnitude as the shocks we experienced in the 70s. But it didn't pass through to overall inflation. The basic point is that en- prices of energy are relative prices. And you know a bunch of retailers in the room. Some prices go up, some prices go down all the time, and our job is to keep the overall basket, um, which which is what the purchasing power of money represents, stable over time. So if energy prices go up, something has to make room for it. That's what happened in the 2000s. Uh, That's what didn't happen in the 1970s. What happened in the 70s is that uh, we allowed, the central banks of the world allowed that to pass through uh, to a broad range of other prices, and moreover, that effect was relatively limited compared to uh, the huge stimulus from excessively, excessively accommodative monetary policy in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, so it, 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 I think it's a settled matter in the profession now that um, it was, um, you know, it was monetary policy that drove that, not the individual shocks. Note that inflation rose from one to five before any oil price shock. From 65 to 70, um, inflation was gyrating and. Um, all throughout then and, and I think it's pretty clear monetary policy was the culprit. So thanks, good question.
1: Hey Jeffrey, I uh, just wanted to hear your perspective a little bit more on the, the 18.2 uh, that was referenced earlier and the connection between Fed rates as you look out over you know, maybe a decade, two decades, and just the connection between the Fed rate and the amount of interest that we're paying on our debt? Good
0: question. I mean, we've been accused of, and, and I think wrongly, completely wrongly, of, of engineering low rates or maintaining low rates in order to aid um, the federal government's ability to finance its deficit. I, I, I don't think that's the case. I've been party to these conversations, and, and, and I'm, I'm certain that's, that's um, not, you know, not what's driving policy. That independence between monetary and fiscal policy is important. Um, where some countries have gone astray in the past with monetary policy, at times it's been driven by um, a fiscal policy authorities, You know, governments, w- uh, unwillingness to finance their debt through means other than inflationary finance, just printing money. So Weimar Germany is the classic case, but there have been others, Zimbabwe is the most notable recent example. Um, some of you may have those little Zimbabwe notes souvenirs um, with lots of zeros on them. Um, so I, I think avoiding that is the key for you know monetary policymakers. Um, and um, for the most part, I think we can. There are circumstances in which constellation of forces might conspire, but it's you know you can think of it as sort of a game. Some economists have likened it to a game of chicken, and um, you know this is a good reason that central banks ought to enjoy a modicum of insulation from short-term political pressures uh, in order to resist that that pressure and conduct policy with a long-range view to sustaining price stability over time. Uh, So I I think that's the the, the first and foremost implication of um, those fiscal imbalances that we talked about. Um, You know, more broadly, I think we're concerned that the adjustment process, um, if those are unsustainable and we have to get to a sustainable path, the adjustment process is... uh, um, you know, is not uh, more uh, disruptive than it has to be.
1: Uh, one, two, three. Hi, I uh,
0: want to say I profoundly respect your hawkishness because uh, dissent always leads to better decisions. I wanted to kind of get your overall view on this argument of, you know, you're a traditional economist and inflation has always been your number one fear. And I, I, I picked up on something you said where careful when you deviate from, you know, traditional models or, and how, where do you stand on this whole new thing of the new normal that instead of inflation, really our key enemy is global deflation? It's a good question. So um, there are countries in the world where um, they are fighting to keep inflation uh, up, um, fighting to bring inflation back towards their target. Um, the ECB, for example, um, and uh, elsewhere, uh, Japan has had that struggle for, for decades as well. Um, I, I think central banks are capable of bringing inflation up. Um, I think it is just that at times other things take some precedence for them. Um, thankfully here I think we are in a situation where. You know We've had a deviation, but it hasn't been large, statistically speaking, hasn't been terribly prolonged, um, and uh, hopefully is behind us now. Um, I, I, you know, Broadly speaking, each, con- each central bank has to take care of its knitting, which is its own domestic price stability. Um, we focus on domestic, U- on U.S. conditions, the ECB needs to do what it, it needs to do to, to meet its goals. Uh, similarly for Japan or other countries around the globe. When we do that and let exchange rates um, adjust uh, and calibrate to what we're doing, um, I I think things turn out well. There was one over here? That one here. Okay, sorry. You got bumped.
1: Uh, I have a double question, both of them. You can can guess at an answer. Uh, One, I've never seen a study uh, relative to you started raising rates, and uh, I did see, a, uh, I don't know if it was Trust or whatever, they mentioned it was raising rates, and raise. of course I think their profits would go up, so I'm sure that relative to loans, but um, for instance, I have a uh, 91-year-old mother. Well, her investment options and seniors and everybody here looks like sooner or later we're, we're heading in that direction, but again, you go for the safer, uh, and a lot of times they are taxable, Investment options, of which right now there's not nearly what they were because there's no interest. Uh, so, that type of thing, and there was economic impact, there's some trade off. So, that's one thing of raising, now there's some trade off between maybe the car price would go up, but then, you know, that other part about that type of investing and how that works. And the other side, really for you to extrapolate, because we all know how the news likes to banter around and now people who have no idea really the effect of an interest rate. But if the Fed said and gave it to the stock market and said, okay, we're gonna raise it starting six months from now, a 16th of a point, okay? The thing is, let them talk it to death. Let Kramer tear it up, okay? But the thing is, the time value of money, the little bit each time as they extrapolate it in, sooner or later, as we all know, in the compound interest, we get back to history and then that, of course, gives you something to work with again because right now you don't have much to work with.
0: Uh, two good questions. Um, the first, um, we're, we're acutely aware at the Fed uh, that uh, this pe- during this period of low interest rates, um, there's a swath of the population on um, fixed income, living on the returns on fixed income investments, uh, and they've been very much hurt. Um, when we forget that, we're reminded about it in uh, audiences like this. So um, we're very acutely aware of that. So when we when we move interest rates around, you know, we have to keep our eye on this, this, this goal of price stability that's, that's really within our control, there's some unavoidable distributional consequences, but they, they're on both sides of the ledger. So raising rates will make uh, those living on fixed income uh, securities um, better off, um, you know, to the extent that the yields uh, that they can earn on CDs and the like go up. But uh, on the other side, um, borrowers are, are gonna pay higher real interest rates and um, that's just, uh, that's just a, a sort of a matter of economic reality. Uh, we take that into account, that's factored into how we figure these, um, the effect of raising or lowering interest rates is going to play out. Um, we have a great deal of sympathy for those who've been hurt by low interest rate policy, but uh, I think the calculus was right that it was necessary given economic conditions for the country as a whole. Uh, let's see, the second question um, was about raising rates, announcing a, a, that we we're going to raise rates a 16th of a percentage point uh, for a certain amount of time. So we sort of tried that experiment. In 2004, in, in June, as uh, actually my first FOMC meeting um, as a president, uh, was um, we raised interest rates a quarter of a percentage point. And we, we said that we, could, we thought that um, we would uh, raise rates at a measured pace. And we raised rates for two straight years a quarter of a percentage point every meeting. We met eight times a year. We did not adjust the schedule of our meetings or the pace at which we raised rates. And in hindsight, it, it does seem as if we got into a rut in which part way through that whole process, the hurdle to changing the rate at which we were raising rates to go 20 basis points or 30 or 50 or you know throw in a 75 or something uh, just looked immense. And so we ended up kind of stuck uh, going up at 25. And from the point of view of 2004, it would have been a real accident if you got exactly where you wanted to go in two years later. So in hindsight, we sort of tied our hands a little bit implicitly by, by going at such a, 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 um, a, pr- a seemingly predetermined rate. Um, so this time, I don't think anyone expects us to go a quarter point a meeting. In fact, you can read this off of what um, FOMC members... Um, reveal It's something called the summary of economic projections and there's a famous thing called the dot plot that shows where FOMC participants, committee participants, expect the funds rate to be at the end of each of the next three years. You can see peop- most people don't expect this to go up at a quarter point a meeting. They expect us to go up at less than that. And um, many committee members have, com- have communicated that they expect the pace of tightening after we first lift off to be more gradual than in the past. And so that affords us the opportunity to gauge the pace of tightening and and have it vary with what we see in the economy. So that if a year from now um, it looks like we need to tighten more rapidly than we thought, we can do it. And if 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 it the economy needs less rapid tightening, we can do that. And I think that makes sense. Um, I think that's a, a, a better approach. What, can we take one more and then um, this the man? Can we have? The the man next to Tom here, I think, has been. You? Oh, okay, never mind. He's off the list. (laughs) All right, I got one in the back. Excuse me.
1: (laughs) I deal a lot in retirement funding, Mm -hmm. and I see people very happy to go out and buy a refrigerator or a new car. But what I am concerned about is I don't
0: see people with the confidence in their job or the economy. To make long-range contributions above the two or three percent level to fund their retirement, my concern is we're heading for another retirement crisis here
1: in the next ten to fifteen years.
0: Well, I, I, I have—I um, mean, I have been an advocate of of improving the way we educate our citizens about. Um, the major financial decisions they face, and um, saving for retirement is one of the big, you know, one of the big three. Investment in your own human capital and education is the other, and then um, what kind of house you buy, and so your housing tenure is the third. And I think we could do a much better job of ed- educating our young people. I think it's, you know, it's like in the '20s we figured out we had to give them driver's ed, you know, to be a, uh, a safe citizen. I think in this day and age, uh, you need a substantial dose of financial education to be able to. Um, conduct your affairs responsibly. Uh, so I'm all in favor of, of better knowledge about that. I mentioned um, households repairing their balance sheets. It's very clear that uh, we built more houses than we wanted to in hindsight up through 2006 and 7, And um, associated with that was the accumulation of much more debt than I think households collectively ended up wanting. So the process since 09 has been one in which uh, households have paid off a lot of debt, uh, they've built up some debt, but they've paid off a lot of debt um, and uh, built up uh, liquid savings because credit is less available than it was in 2005, so you can't rely on just having a, an unused credit card balance. People learned it could go away. So people have been building up liquid liquid savings, um, and I think that makes sense. Um, you know, I'm hope, expect that, you know, in a timely way they'll also look ahead to retirement and, and and uh, plan sensibly for that. Um, So I'm all in favor of uh, wanting people to pay close attention to that, so um, uh, I'm with you. Well, thank you very much.